We will be considering this Lord's Day, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. True greatness is not so much measured by one's ability to rule, but rather by one's ability to serve. Raw power or strength do not qualify one to rule well, whether in the state, the church, or in the family. The most qualified leaders are those who have learned that the grave and serious responsibility to lead is not an excuse to push people around, to have others grovel at their feet, to have the common people look up to them as royalty or to promote their own selfish agenda. Dear ones, those reasons for ruling are all too ordinary and those of us who have been corrupted by sin in our appetites for power. However, to find leaders and leaders especially in the church of Jesus Christ who understand the greatest duty of a ruler to be a servant to Christ and to his people is truly extraordinary. Rather than filling us with pride, the enormous duty of shepherding Christ's flock ought to empty us of all self-sufficiency and drive us in humble fear to an all-sufficient Savior. Today we shall consider from our text in Mark 10, verses 32 through 45, that the greatest minister or the greatest leader is the greatest servant. Our main points are as follows. First, the willingness of Christ to serve through suffering. Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. Secondly, the desire of the disciples to be served through ruling. Mark 10, verses 35 through 41. And thirdly, true greatness lies not so much in ruling, but in serving. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Our first main point then, the willingness of Christ to serve through suffering. Look with me at our text, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again." After the discourse in Mark 10, verses 28 through 31, wherein the Lord assured his disciples of the earthly and heavenly rewards, all would receive who, who sacrificed that which was precious to them here upon the earth, 
he proceeds on his way to Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaits him there. Suffering, the shame of cruel men, his own death, by which he would purchase the redemption of his people. Our text begins by relating that as the Lord and his disciples walked on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus walked ahead of them, apparently noticeably ahead of them. Perhaps he was walking much more quickly than they were walking. But the text draws attention to the fact that he was ahead of them. As if he were leading them along the way, demonstrating to them that the way of serving others through his suffering is the path to true greatness in the kingdom of God. He was not following them. He was not pushing them ahead of him that they might take the brunt of the attack. He was leading them and they were walking in his footsteps. Exactly what we should be doing. Walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples did not understand what Christ had previously taught them concerning his death and his resurrection. In Mark chapter 8 verse 31 and in Mark chapter 9 verse 31 two previous occasions, the Lord had laid out very clearly and explicitly for his disciples what was to happen to him concerning his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And yet they did not clearly understand yet what was about to happen. They still did not understand the reason and the purpose for his death, of which he prophesied concerning himself. As far as the disciples knew, uh, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem, and they were uh, afraid, more so because they just knew Jerusalem was a pretty unfriendly place to them in the past. That they had encountered uh, the Pharisees, who wanted to stone the Lord Jesus. And so, as far as they were concerned, uh, this was just not the place to go if we wanted to be comfortable, safe, and secure. If we didn't want to get uh, get into trouble, that's not the place to go. We'll have uh, a lot more time to be able to, to preach the gospel of the kingdom if we do so outside of Jerusalem. But the Lord knew that was where... He was to offer his life. And so the disciples, it says, were amazed in Mark 10.32. Amazed at the courage of Christ. Although they followed in fear, according to Mark 10.32, it's worth noting they nevertheless did follow. They didn't abandon the Lord at this point just because they were fearful. You see, dear ones, the true courage is not measured by the absence of fear in our minds, but 
rather by our willingness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, even when there is fear in our minds. Not in the absence of fear is true courage manifested, but in the presence of fear is it truly manifested. The true coward is not, not the one who fears, but is rather the one who turns back from following Christ because of his fears. That's the true coward. Well, this is now the third time in which the Lord explicitly prepares his disciples for his death and resurrection, as we noted earlier. According to Luke 18.34, a parallel passage to the one we're considering in Mark today, they did not yet understand what the Lord was saying. The, The verse there says that it was hidden from their understanding. Now, why didn't they understand about Christ's death, his resurrection, the purpose of his coming? Because of their ignorance regarding the true nature of Christ's kingdom. That is, that Christ's kingdom is not a worldly political kingdom, but is rather a universal kingdom that cuts across all geographical, racial, national, and political boundaries. It is the rule of Christ over his bride, the church, whom he has come to serve by purchasing her unto himself through his obedience and through his suffering. They did not understand that to be the true nature of the kingdom. They understand a worldly political rule of Christ. And therefore, whenever Christ spoke of his death, of his suffering, they could not put it into that paradigm that they had established in their minds. Dear ones, it is not natural for us to be serving when we are suffering through afflictions. All too often, we are simply concerned with how others will be serving us when we're undergoing afflictions, not how we might be serving others. And yet the heart of a true servant of Christ, dear ones, is made manifest even when he is flat on his back or being spat upon, or when he has a crown of thorns thrust into his skull, or when he is unjustly condemned to death, or when he is suffocating in torment while hanging upon a cross. The servant heart of the followers of Jesus is manifested even in those times, even as it was manifested in the life of Christ. It is human when affliction, whatever form that affliction may take, when it comes our way, it is, it is human, it is normal for us to feed upon self-pity, the poison of self-pity and to expect and to demand that we be served by others. And when others do not serve us, to be upset with them, 
rather than filling our minds with what can we do, even in this particularly terrible place that we find ourselves, how can we, if we can't get up out of bed, how can we at least desire to serve others? How can we pray for others? How can we encourage others by writing a note or a letter or calling someone? We rather become consumed with ourselves in the midst of our afflictions. Christ was not consumed with himself in the midst of his afflictions. He was thinking of others. He was willing to be a servant even in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his afflictions. I think the Apostle Paul, likewise, in Philippians chapter 1, provides an example for us all. There he was, having been sent to prison, waiting trial, chained under house arrest, And he was not consumed with himself. He was not consumed with his own problems. He was not consumed in bitterness over how he had been mistreated. That he had lost his his freedoms. That he had lost all of basically his possessions that he had. Access to his family or relations to a large degree. What he was consumed with was serving Christ. And if he couldn't do anything else, that person to whom he was chained was going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a captive audience. They viewed him as being the captive. But Paul turned around and said, no, I'm not the captive. I've been set free. The person to whom I'm chained is the captive. And he's going to hear the gospel. You see how he turned a situation around. He's thinking throughout the book of Philippians, the letter of the Philippians. He's thinking of others. And the the theme that flows through it is joy. The joy of the Lord. Dear ones, you'll never know joy if you are more concerned with being served than in serving others. You'll never know contentment and peace if that's what fills your mind. You'll be consumed with, with keeping a record book. What this person has done for me and seeking to do to them as they have done to you. If they have served you, well, I'll serve them. You'll be keeping an account. That's what you'll be consumed with. And where you're not served, you'll be angry and resentment, uh, resentful. Thus did our Savior serve in anticipation of his suffering and in the midst of suffering the likes of which no man has ever suffered. This our Savior calls us to do who are his disciples in all of our afflictions as well. The second main point is the desire of the disciples to be served through ruling Look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 41. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. 
And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Somewhere along the way to Jerusalem, two of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Christ asking a question in Mark 10.35, that question being, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Matthew's Gospel indicates that their mother was the one who actually posed the question to Christ in Matthew 20.20. It would seem that the two brothers were the real instigators here of this question, but that they had convinced their mother to ask it of Christ on their behalf. For consider that Christ's response is directed to the two disciples rather than to their mother. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, the Lord there uses the singular form of you when he says, What wilt thou? In other words, to the mother, he says, What wilt thou? She had a question. And he says, what wilt thou? What's the, what's, your, what's the question that you have? What's your request? But the answer that he gives is not thou, but ye, consistently through the response. So that he's directing those who are behind the mother, who press the mother into this place on their behalf. Also consider that the other ten disciples are not indignant with the mother, but they're indignant with James and John themselves in Mark 10.41. Perhaps James and John thought that Christ might be more willing to grant them their request if it proceeded from the mouth of their tender mother than from their own mouths. At least they thought perhaps it won't look so bad coming from our mother as coming from us. Well, what did they want Christ to do for them? <clears throat> Very simply, they, that they might sit upon thrones in the most honored and privileged positions near to Christ one on the immediate right hand of Christ 
and one on the immediate left hand of Christ. They wanted, dear ones, to be served as they ruled over others. The Lord, in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, was speaking of rewards. He mentioned to them that the disciples would sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, when the Lord sat upon his throne of glory. Thus the disciples believed they would soon be sitting upon these thrones themselves, that Christ was about to ascend the throne of his glory, that this political kingdom was about to be inaugurated within Israel. Jesus was going to be crowned king within Jerusalem. And they would have these special places of privilege and honor and authority there with Christ. But even there in the Matthew account, Christ had taught them, if any man desired to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. This idea, dear ones, of an earthly rule of Christ, a Christ ruling upon the earth, which is one of the delusions of premillennialism that they, that they labor under, is clearly shown not to be the case in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, and verses 33 through 36, where we find Christ speaking of, or Peter speaking of Christ ascending to the throne of David. <clears throat> Listen to the words that are spoken here. Peter says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Verse 32 and following. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith, unto, uh, he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He would remain upon his throne in heaven until all of his enemies had been made his footstool. Until Satan himself had been cast into the lake of fire. Until death 
would be subdued. The Lord Jesus will sit upon the throne of David in heaven and rule from there and not upon a throne ruling over a political kingdom upon this earth. Thus James and John wanted to be above the rest of their brethren in honor and in authority. They wanted to be served. They even wanted to be served by their fellow brethren, the disciples. You recall that the disciples had earlier disputed over this very kind of a question when they asked in Mark 9.34, who shall be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you'll recall that the Lord said to them, and he taught them again at that particular point, that he who would be great must become the servant of all. That those who would be great are not those who necessarily are in places of rule and authority, but those who are the greatest are those, whether in places of rule and authority or not in places of rule and authority, they are servants. Those are, the, those are the ones who are truly great in the kingdom of Christ. For you see, dear ones, that although the disciples may not have coveted lands and earthly possessions like the rich young ruler, they nevertheless evidence the sin of covetousness in coveting honor, prestige, privilege, and power. It would appear that serving others was the farthest thing from their mind in this particular request. They were not interested in being a servant, but rather in being a prince. They fell into the same sin uh, as that of Miriam and, and uh, Aaron, were envious of the authority of Moses, the sin of Korah, and Dathan, and Abiram, who said concerning Moses, Why is he the one who leads us? Aren't we all the priests of God? They envied and coveted that authority. Or Absalom, who envied the authority and the place of power of his father, and sat at the gate and sought to dissuade all the people as they would come through the gate to hear their their case tried by David. Or Haman, who desired to step over whomever he could to ascend to that place of rule in the kingdom of Persia. Or Diotrephes, in Third John, verse 9, where we read concerning this particular man. <clears throat> John writes, I wrote unto the, the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. This is a very grievous sin, to covet places of authority, to covet to be served rather than coveting to serve. For whatever we desire 
that is not for the glory of God, whatever we desire that is not according to the revealed will of God, and whatever we desire that is not out of faith in the promise of God, is a sinful desire. If we would earnestly and sincerely see sinful behavior, whether in word or deed, be crucified in our lives, dear ones, we must not merely deal with the outward symptoms, with our mouth and our, and our actions, but we must get down to where the real battle lies, in our desires and in our affections. In overcoming those enemies of our soul within, we must understand that there is only victory through the righteousness of Christ. There is only victory, dear ones, through the power of Christ. There is only victory through the cross of Christ. There is only victory through the mind of Christ. How is that? What do I mean by that? Well, Paul said it so very well. In Romans 12:21, how do we overcome evil? We overcome evil with good. How do, you, how do you overcome those evil desires? You overcome those evil desires with good desires. By thinking on that which is good and righteous and holy by thinking upon how you can serve others, how you can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You seek to replace that which is, is covetous, that which is, is an evil and wicked desire within, with that which is a beneficial and profit, profitable coveting. Coveting Christ, coveting the treasures of heaven, coveting the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the mind of Christ, thinking His thoughts after Him. <clears throat> Dear ones, today do you covet to be a servant or to be a prince? Do you covet to wash others' feet? Or to have others wash your feet without the desire to be a servant, there will be no change in your outward words or your behavior. It must begin at the desire and affection level. Well, the Lord answers the request of these two disciples by revealing to them their ignorance when He says, Ye know not what ye ask. In Mark 10.38. See, their ignorance, in part, along with their sinful desire to be served rather than to serve, <clears throat> their ignorance of Christ's kingdom had led them to ask this very foolish question. The Lord then continues His response by asking James and John, this question, Mark 10:38. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
the Lord here uses two different figures of speech which signify union and participation. To drink of a cup is to participate with what's in that cup, for it to be uh, brought into your being. There's union with whatever that is that's in that cup. Baptism signifies the same thing. It signifies union. Baptism into Christ signifies union with Jesus Christ. And so both of these metaphors are figures of speech. Speak of participation and union with something. Now, certainly Christ, I believe, had in mind union with His afflictions, union with His sufferings. Can you drink of the cup of sufferings that I'm going to drink of? Can you be baptized with the, the baptism of afflictions and suffering that I'm going to be baptized with? But He doesn't specifically mention Afflictions are suffering. He leaves it rather vague in general. Can you, be, can you drink of the cup that I will drink of? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? He doesn't indicate what's in the cup or what it is that they would be joined and united with in baptism. Perhaps they had in their minds not sufferings, but blessings. Yeah, I can, I, can, uh, I can do that. I can handle that, Lord. I can drink of that cup. I can be baptized with that baptism. Again, the ignorance of these two disciples leads them to respond so rashly. We can. We're able. In Mark 10.39... Sometimes don't you feel like just taking the disciples' heads and just kind of banging them together when you hear those kinds of responses? Of course, uh, we've got 2020 uh, hindsight. We have the revelation of the Lord. Put ourselves in the same situation might be an altogether different matter. But isn't the patience of the Lord truly amazing here? The Lord might have deservedly humiliated these two ministers of His publicly for their ignorance, for their pride, for their selfishness and covetousness. Rebuke them, He does, in His words. But oh, how so gently. Oh, how so graciously He rebukes them. Here is a Savior, dear ones, who deals ever so gently with our failures, and our weaknesses. And He will be no less gentle with you than He was with these two disciples. The more we truly know and learn of Jesus Christ, the more we shall want to flee to Him in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our unbelief, in the midst of our fears and worries, in the midst of our ignorance, in the midst of our discouragement and our desperation and our afflictions and our sufferings. For to know Him, dear ones, is to love Him. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ is to be drawn to Jesus Christ, to, to love Him all the more. 
You cannot help loving Christ and growing in your love for Christ if you're growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. For He is sure, a sure and steadfast refuge, dear ones, to all who come to Him in faith and lay hold of Him. Those who come to Him, He has promised He'll not turn any, not even one, away. Those who come to Him in faith and lay hold of Jesus Christ, He'll not cast out. That's a promise. That's a promise that, that you can count on, that you can depend upon. For it comes from the mouth of one who cannot lie. Dear ones, He will not break the bruised reed, nor will he quench the smoking flax. No matter how you're struggling today, dear brother or sister, the Lord here prophesies that both James and John will indeed have their part in sharing in his suffering. Maybe they ignorantly said, yeah, we can do it, Lord. But the Lord does say to them, yes, you're going to have a part in sharing in my suffering. You're going to drink to varying degrees of the cup of my suffering and affliction. You're going to be baptized to varying degrees of the baptism of suffering and affliction for my namesake and for my cause. In fact, James in Acts chapter 12, verse Two was martyred at the whim of Herod. It says in Acts 12.1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Yeah, he did. He did drink of that cup. He was baptized with that baptism. Revelation 1.9, John, the beloved apostle, writes these words from the Isle of Patmos, where he was exiled for, his, for the cause of Christ. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here were two disciples that were not quite ready at this point in time for suffering for Christ. They were not ready at this point in time to serve. They seemed to be more of a mindset they wanted to be served. They, like Peter, confessed very rashly and proudly that they would never forsake the Lord. In Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 27. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, 
Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. They all said the same thing. Perhaps good intentions, but when you are caught up with being served rather than serving others, rather than serving Christ, that will be the outcome. A lot of hot air, but not the follow-through. In fact, in Mark 14, chapter, chapter 14, verse 50, when the Lord was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the words very simply stated, and they all forsook him and fled. Don't we see here the weakness of these disciples of Christ? And yet, Christ so worked His grace in them that they became willing followers of the sufferings of Christ, as we've already noted concerning James and John. They grew from being those who desired to be served at the right hand of Christ to being those who desired to serve at the cross of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you see your weakness when you think of suffering for Christ? Is there kind of a knot in your throat as you think of suffering for Christ? I mean, really suffering for Christ. I know there is in mine. I'd like for you to consider the the following account the weakness of one of Christ's faithful martyrs. This is the account of Thomas Cranmer, taken from Five English Reformers by J.C. Ryle. And now comes the painful fact that in the last month of Cranmer's life, his courage failed him. And he was persuaded to sign a recantation of his Protestant opinions. Flattered and cajoled by subtle kindness, frightened at the prospect of so dreadful a death as burning, tempted and led away by the devil, Thomas Cranmer fell and put his hand to a paper in which he repudiated and renounced the principles of the Reformation for which he had labored so long. Great was the sorrow of all true Protestants on hearing these tidings. Great was the triumphing and exultation of all papists. Had they stopped here and set their noble victim at liberty, the name of Cranmer would probably have sunk and never risen again. But the Romish party, as God would have it, outwitted themselves. With fiendish cruelty, they resolved to burn Cranmer even after he had recanted. This, by God's providence, was just the turning point for Cranmer's reputation. Through the abounding grace of God, he repented of his fall. 
and found mercy. Through the same abounding grace, he resolved to die in the faith of the Reformation. And at last, through abounding grace, he witnessed such a bold confession in St. Mary's, Oxford, that he confounded his enemies, filled his friends with thankfulness and praise, and left the world a triumphant martyr for Christ's truth. I need hardly remind you how on the 21st of March, the unhappy archbishop was brought out like Samson in the hands of the Philistines to make sport of his enemies and to be a gazing stock to the world in St. Mary's Church at Oxford. I need hardly remind you how after Dr. Cole's sermon he was invited to declare his faith and was fully expected to acknowledge publicly his alteration of religion and his adhesion to the Church of Rome. I need hardly remind you how with intense mental suffering the Archbishop addressed the assembly at great length and at the close suddenly astounded his enemies by renouncing all his former recantations, declaring the Pope to be Antichrist and rejecting the Popish doctrine of the real presence in the, in the communion. Such a sight was certainly never seen by mortal eyes since the world began. But then came the time of Cranmer's triumph. With a light heart and a clear conscience, he cheerfully allowed himself to be hurried to the stake amidst the frenzied outcries of his disappointed enemies. Boldly and undauntedly, he stood up at the stake while the flames curled around him, steadily holding out his right hand in the fire and saying, with reference to his having signed a recantation, this unworthy right hand and steadily holding up his left hand towards heaven. Of all the martyrs, strange to say, none at the last moment showed more physical courage than Cranmer did. Nothing in short in all his life became him so well as the manner of his leaving it. Greatly he had sinned, but greatly he had repented. Like Peter, he fell, but like Peter, he rose again. <clears throat> All those who reign with Christ, dear ones, will in this life, the scripture teaches for with Christ in various ways. It declares that as mediator, he had come to do the, the Father's will. So this matter must be submitted as to whether they or whomever would sit on his right or his left hand. This matter must be sit, submitted to the hidden counsel of God the Father who will reveal such things at his own appointed time. It would appear, dear ones, that the other ten disciples were not so much indignant. It says that they were displeased. Matthew's account says they were indignant. But it would appear that they were not so much uh, indignant and displeased with James and John because they had because James and John had grievously sinned in their request, but more so because they too envied the same positions of honor and authority whereby that they might be served as well. It was more they are upset. Well, you beat me to the punch. It was more that. I didn't do the same thing. It was, it's, it was more uh, an attitude of envy that they had done what perhaps the other ten had thought in their hearts. And this, I believe, is made clear 
And our final and last point in what Christ says, and that's the last, the third point, true greatness lies not so much in ruling but in serving. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord not only addresses these words to James and John, but rather to all of the disciples together. Not all of them had voiced the same self-serving request that James and John had done, but they all desired the same thing from Christ. And perhaps, perhaps given the right circumstances, would have done exactly the same thing as did James and John. How many times, dear ones, have we found ourselves condemning in others what is true of ourselves? Such hypocrisy, dear ones, breeds self-righteousness. It breeds a harshness within our own souls, within our spirits, within our words. The Lord clearly tells us how to avoid such hypocrisy in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 where he says that we are first to take out the beam the log out of our own eye before seeking to remove the moat or the speck the little the, the little piece of sawdust out of the eye of our brother any other way dear ones will will again produce within our lives hypocrisy, very much of a self-serving attitude rather than serving others. We will not be able to see clearly. We will not be able to apply the Word of God clearly with that type of pride and that type of hypocrisy in our lives. We must learn to be more critical of our own sins than we are the sins of others. We must begin with our own lives before we begin to, to expose the sins of others. For in the final outcome, others won't receive what we have to say anyway if it's not done in that spirit. If others perceive self-righteousness, if they perceive harshness on our parts, they won't care to hear anything that we have to say. But if they perceive humility, if they perceive that we have judged ourselves first and we come in gentleness, in mercy, the gracious heart and attitude, in all sincerity laying before them the truth of their sin, it is far more likely that the Spirit of God is going to take that word into work in their lives. The Lord contrasts here in verses 42 
through 44, the way in which the Gentile magistrates rule with the way in which Christian ministers ought to rule in the church. There ought to be, dear ones, a conspicuous difference between the way the, the magistrates in the nations rule and the way Christian ministers lead and rule. And there are at least three contrasts in leadership that we should not fail to see here. First contrast is this. Whereas the Gentile magistrates covet power and honor over others that they might be served, Christian ministers must covet to be servants that they might lay down their lives sacrificially for Christ and his flock. An obvious contrast, conspicuous difference between magistrates and ministers. Secondly, whereas the Gentile magistrates covet to be first in preeminence and to rule over uh, other lesser magistrates, this chain of command within, within the, uh, amongst the civil government, in the civil government, Christian ministers must covet to be equal with all other Christian ministers and ruling elders. No degrees of higher authority or lesser authority. Christ here teaches and condemns prelacy and popery as being a wicked system because it imitates that of the heathen magistrates seeking to lord it over others in power and in authority. You see, this is following the will of the world rather than the will of Christ. I would submit to you, dear ones, this is the spirit of Antichrist to seek to rule over others, to rule over their consciences, to bind their consciences to that which is not agreeable to the Word of God. And thirdly, whereas the Gentile magistrates covet to rule in all areas of temporal affairs, binding the consciences of people to swear unlawful oaths, Christian ministers must covet to lead under Christ, under Christ, to lead under Christ in those specified and designated areas revealed by Christ in doctrine, in worship, in government, and in discipline, not binding the consciences of people to anything that is not revealed by Christ in his word. The great example given to us in verse 45 of Mark 10 is Christ himself. He who is the eternal Son of God did not cling to his own divine rights so as to prevent him from serving we who spat upon him, we who beat him, we who drove those thorns into his skull, we who judged him falsely, and we who put him upon that cross. He came to serve the ungodly upon whom he had set his love from all eternity by purchasing their salvation. 
How can we, dear ones, cling to any rights we believe belong to us in refusing to serve Christ by humbling ourselves to, to minister to one another? In light of what Christ has demonstrated and shown us. And in fact, I would submit to you, dear ones, service is contagious. In a family where the members serve one another, it is self-attesting. It is, it is a reciprocal relationship. One gets caught up in serving rather than being served. Others as well will model that particular service. Those who selflessly and sacrificially serve others will find that when they are in need, there will be no lack of persons to help them because they have been so much involved in service themselves. And I want you to understand, service begins in the home. And if it doesn't begin in the home, we'll never see it in the church. And if it is in the church but not in the home, it's pure hypocrisy. If husbands and wives cannot serve one another. Yes, even husbands who are the leaders whom God has appointed to be the leaders within the home, if they are not exemplifying their leadership through service, it's pretty hard to convince wives that they ought to do the same because they are the leaders. They are the ones to whom they look. And if uh, 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 fathers and husbands and mothers and wives aren't doing so, how do we expect the children to do so? if they don't have that example before them. And if it's not happening there, again, it's not going to be happening in our church at all. Are you waiting around, dear ones, to be served like Antichrist on his papal throne, waiting for people to grovel before him to kiss his ring, to give him titles and the dignity of the divine God? Or are you, like Christ, going about serving others, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of your suffering and afflictions, in the midst of your pains and your heartaches? Are you filled with the spirit of Christ, not Antichrist, in serving rather than waiting to be served. Please stand with me in prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Father in heaven, how we praise Thee and thank Thee this day for the word of life the word which brings true comfort and joy, that with which, without which, O oh Lord, we cannot live, and that without which we will certainly, in this life, never enjoy that peace and contentment and joy which comes through serving Christ, being filled with that servant's heart and attitude being willing to lay down our lives for others 
looking continuously as to how we can help and serve others. We ask our Father that Thou would humble us this day. For, O Lord our God, there is none of us who are present here who is without guilt in this area. We have all, every one of us, waited to be served. We have all, every one of us, been resentful, been angry when we were not served. O Lord, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, that we would not imbibe and drink of the spirit of Antichrist, but that we would drink freely the spirit of life, the spirit of Christ, in going forth to be servants. From the youngest of us to the oldest, we pray to the glory of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.